HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. HRN is teaming up with them to host a virtual event all about American cider. Check it out at heritageradionetwork.org cider. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Farmer Lee Jones. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Farmer Lee about vegetables, his new book, The Chef's Garden, and we'll hear Farmer Lee's Julia Moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to Season 11. We have a lot of great conversations in store. We'll be welcoming author Yasmin Khan... Chef Amanda Cohen, Daniela Garza from the Washington Post, Cherry Bomb's wine guru, Cha McCoy, farmer Matthew Rayford, and pitmaster Rodney Scott, among many others. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. While it's true that Julia didn't feature farmers in her beloved TV shows, they certainly featured in the advice she gave. From her days in France, she developed a profound appreciation for food producers, whether farmer, butcher, or winemaker. Oma said candlestick maker. Julia advocated, the more you understand about how your food is grown, raised, or made, the more you'll care about what you eat. She was a regular at Santa Barbara's longstanding farmer's market, lucky to live in a community closely connected to nearby farms. Julia taught us, knowing our farmers, their trials and triumphs, is critical to being a good food consumer. Great chefs keenly appreciate farmers who grow the best produce. That's their secret to serving us the most delicious food. The better your raw ingredients, the less you have to do to make them taste good. This is becoming even more significant as plant-based eating gathers greater momentum. 
Someone who has been supplying chefs with delectable produce for decades is Farmer Lee Jones. Farmer Lee and his family grow vegetables on 300 acres in Huron, Ohio, about an hour west of Cleveland and not too far from the shores of Lake Erie. After having to completely start over in the 1980s, the family farm shifted to reviving heirloom vegetables, discovering new varieties, and practicing regenerative agriculture. Their mission, flavor, and nutrition. Farmer Lee was inducted into the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who in Food and Beverage in 2011. He was even the first farmer to judge Food Network's Iron Chef America. You may have seen his signature white shirt, denim overalls, and red bow tie. Farmer Lee joins us today to tell us about his dedication to growing great veg and his new book, The Chef's Garden, a modern guide to common and unusual vegetables with recipes. Welcome to the podcast, Farmer Lee. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm excited to talk all about growing great veg. And so I wanted to start off with just asking, is is being a vegetable farmer in today's world different than when you first started doing it? I think that there's more interest than ever before, and it's very exciting. And, you know, as you alluded to, we are moving towards, and it's inevitable that we move towards plant-based, plant-forward future. And I think that uh, it's very exciting to see all the interest. So it, it has evolved, for sure. I'd be remiss in not asking, though, and especially uh, what we haven't gotten into is w- one of the the pivots that you did in a previous up, uh, upset to the economy and your world was to focus on chefs and restaurants. And clearly with the pandemic, that must have had an impact on on, on your business and your plans for 2020. Well, it really did. I mean, when we, we lost the family farm when I was 19, uh, if you recall uh, Earl Butts, Secretary of Agriculture, late 70s, early 80s, his, his, uh, his statement to farmers was to get big or get out. And everybody, you know, was farming chemically and synthetically and evolving towards genetic modification. And I don't fault the farmers. The farmers are doing an amazing job at the model that, that they're tasked with working within. And that is to keep your costs as low as possible and produce as many tons per acre. It's not measured on the nutrient per mouthful. It's on the tons per acre. And we were trying to survive in that world. And you may remember from the history books, but interest rates hit actually 22% in the late 70s, early 80s. And we got wrapped up in 22% interest. We had a devastating hailstorm and it wiped the business out and the banks foreclosed. And I stood at 19 years old with my mother and father, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned the entire farm off right down to my mother's car in our home. And as devastating as that was, it did give us an opportunity to rethink what we were doing. And what we did was go back to agricultural books that were pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer. A hundred years ago, my dad has a saying that the only thing that we're trying to do is get as good as the farmers were a hundred years ago. And in many (laughs) cases, that's very true. Wow. Yeah, no, I know that that's the amazing thing. And I I think I wanted to ask you, because you just brought up something that I think people often forget about, that the way farmers farm well, A, as you described it, is a choice, but it's a choice that is very much 
dominated by federal policy and the the outside of that the the business environment of like right you had two options at that time find a niche market or figure out how to get enormous which wasn't really an option given your capital right or walk away like so many did and and we probably you know should have um if you would have looked at common sense um <laughs> but because there was no money nobody would loan us any money and I could tell you survival, we were truly in survival mode. But ironically, we met a European-influenced chef. Her name was Iris Balin. She had trained in Europe, and she had seen where you go to the farm market every day, you get your vegetables, you get your beef, you get your uh, pastry or your bakery goods, and then you do it again the next day. And she said, you know, I think that if you guys would grow without chemical, grow for the flavor, grow for the flavor, Oh, and she might have mentioned a third time, grow for the flavor, natural flavor, rather than growing it propped up to produce tons per acre. I think that there would be enough chefs to support you. And early on then, we met Jean-Louis Paladin. And Jean-Louis Paladin, of course, introduced us to Danielle and John George and Alain Ducasse. And then, of course, the American chefs, uh, you know, Thomas Keller and Charlie Trotter and so many chefs all across the country. And they really took us under their wing and said, you know, do this the right way and we'll support you. And they knew that they had to give us enough business to keep us in business. And man, we grabbed around both of their ankles of the, we grabbed around the ankles of these chefs and said, okay, teach us. And off we went. So it's really kind of a combination between the mentoring of chefs and going back to agricultural books and looking at how they were doing it. If you look at the nutritional levels a hundred years ago, it was significantly higher than it is today. From 1980 to 2020, it is the nutritional levels in vegetables have gone down by over 50%, and they continue to go down at an increasing rate. Now, the yields are higher, but the nutritional levels are tanking. You can lay another graph over that, and the occurrences in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, a 3,000% increase in the last 60 years. I don't think there's any coincidence there. Uh, <laughs> I know that it's it, it didn't happen by accident. There's a direct correlation is what I'm trying to say between the way that we're farming, and we do it very efficiently in America. We produce, as it relates to our income, we produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income, yet we have the highest health care in the world. No, and I think that that's a growing emphasis that I know from our guests and the 2020 Julia Child recipient, Danielle Nirenberg, who works on food policy, that this this is kind of the hot button and, and important, not just trendy topic of the difference between calories and nutrition, and that we become a calorie-centric society where we've been losing all these things that you just alluded to. So I just want to go back to, to having survived one massive uh, calamity on the farm. Was, was your business 100% chef-driven, and then was it gone overnight when March 2020 hit? I think you just described it exactly right. <laughs> it was 100% chef-driven. We were shipping direct from our farm uh, all over uh, Las Vegas, New York, Disney, uh, Chicago, wherever we could find a chef that was committed to the best flavor, best quality uh, that they could find. And literally overnight, 
I mean, you look at the graph on our sales chart and that just like, it just shut off. It was like somebody flipped a, a night switch, light switch. And has that come back or did you, um, you, you basically pivoted to, cause you had all the food was still there, um, to a kind of direct to consumer, like community, um, agriculture model or CSA is what I was looking for. It's kind of a CSA. Um, I I'd like to say on steroids, but I don't like the word steroid, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, I mean, Again, it was desperation. Number one, we thought that we could really help by providing uh, folks with something healthy. Because as a hypothesis, we suspected that, you know, we had really been focused for the last 40 years on how we can improve flavor naturally. We had an educated guess that the nutrient levels were coming with that. My dad, who we lost in August of 2020. Again, oh, I'm sorry. We, we, yeah, we miss him every day. Um, but he was, you know, a lot of times the older generation, you got to drag along with the new ideas. And he was right there out on the front edge pushing. And he pushed for us to put a laboratory right on the farm. We have three scientists on staff. And we wanted to understand, we believe everything fundamentally starts with the health of the soil. And get a par or a baseline of what was going on with our soil. And, you know, the best way to describe it is I think we all kind of jokingly say, I need to get some vitamin D. I'm going to go out and collect some sunshine. It's so very true, but it goes so much further than that. Once we find out what the soil is deficient in, we can plant crop specific. And it's really cool to think that we can plant clover or alfalfa or buckwheat or sedan grass. We have a 15 species cover crop planting that we plant. And if you can visualize those plants as receptacles or solar panels and they harvest the energy and two-thirds of the acreage out of 350 acres, two-thirds of that, it's an, unprecedented, it's an unprecedented commitment to rebuilding soil. Two-thirds of 350 acres in any one year is just harvesting the sun's energy. And then the next year when we plant the turnip or the beet or the carrot or the radish or the spinach or whatever it is we want to consume, it picks that back up. We're seeing nutrient level increases of 300 to 500% higher than the USDA average. So what we felt was that maybe we could provide healthy vegetables to people when they were afraid to go to a grocery store, they weren't sure where they were gonna get their food. And it allowed us to be able to keep our team intact and keep our farm going and be able to make the product available to anybody anywhere in the country. So literally, in a 24-hour in a period, we patched together our website to be able to make it available for people to go online and get a box of vegetables delivered right to their home. And, of course, the chefs are sitting at home. We're, we sent them a box, told them what we were doing. They were then posting, thanks to social media, posting what they were doing and how they were preparing dishes. And so we've curated different boxes with different offerings. So... Uh, it really has kind of saved us. As the restaurants return, and we are their biggest cheerleaders, we would do anything in the world to help the restaurants. As they return, we're going to continue to supply them, but we're going to also continue making our product available, health and healthy and highly nutritious product available to people at home. Oh, that's great to hear. Now, I wanted to ask you, because I know you have a relationship with the wonderful uh, 2019 Julia Child Award recipient, uh, Chef Jose Andres. And did you, and clearly he was a, a very strong advocate through his nonprofit World Central Kitchen of repurposing 
uh, food from farms and restaurant staff to help with COVID relief. Did you end up supplying World Central Kitchen with some of your your produce? We did not. Jose has been a huge supporter. We offered it, and he really was looking for product that he could manage for high volume. And ours just didn't really fit that bill. He actually has been here several times. He actually did the foreword in the book and is a huge, huge supporter and a friend and has really helped promote the home delivery box. Uh, I think that he has a system that works to be able to feed masses of people very uh, efficiently. And we just really didn't have the volume to be able to supply that. Well, fair enough. Um, before we go to break, I wanted to ask you, and you kind of alluded to it, but I wanted you to explain sort of firsthand because I think it's it's really fascinating and not necessarily what people would expect to be sitting, um, an, you know, between Cleveland and Sandusky, is to tell us about your uh, culinary uh, vegetable institute. Absolutely. Uh, well, Chef Jamie Simpson is the uh, the head of the Culinary Vegetable Institute. It's a facility that our family built. 20 years ago, with the help of Thomas Keller and Charlie Trotter and Danielle Ballou and Alain Ducasse, Jean-Georges von Richten, and we built a facility where folks could come, chefs could come. In fact, Jose brought 15 of his uh, research team and worked on putting together a vegetable book there two years ago. But uh, we have about 600 visiting chefs a year where they can come in, play with Jamie Simpson, our chef, and be able to work on menu development but as well, it's open to the public for folks to be able to come and experience uh, farm-to-table, but as well plant-based dishes. Uh, and we opened it up to an Airbnb in the middle of the COVID uh, oh, wow. to make it available for folks that wanted a good, clean, safe spot to be able to stay overnight. And are there examples, because I maybe I'm wrongly assuming, but is that also kind of your laboratory where you figure out, you know, are your carrots becoming more nutritious or have you made them more nutritious in your process? Well, the Culinary Vegetable Institute is in Milan, Ohio, and of course the out-of-towners pronounce it Milan. And so uh, <laughs> we joke about it's a, it's a cheap visit to Milan, Ohio. But uh, the Culinary Vegetable Institute is set up in Milan, which is about three miles from the farm. The lab sits literally, and it was built three years ago, and we're continuing to build it out. It sits literally right in the middle of the field at the chef's garden. And the, the, they work very interactively between Chef Jamie Simpson and the team at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. But the lab is in the field where we can go out. We can have an understanding of what's going on with the soil. We're testing the carrots. You know, there's a misconception. My dad has said before, People think that a carrot is a carrot is a carrot is a carrot. It's simply not true. We're seeing significant differences in how they're grown, the varietal selection, how the soil is taken care of, what's not being used. It's unbelievable when you take care of the soil. We have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. And those are really what's most important at the chef's garden. So I think you're saying it's about the soil. <laughs> it's about the soil. <laughs> and so in some ways also, it sounds like maybe the Institute part of the Culinary Vegetable Institute is you design that more as a place for chefs to play and experiment and discover and to have actually consumer appreciation. It the And then it interacts with your lab on the farm. That's, that's right. It's really a place to be able to open it up to the public for us to discuss the differences in the way food is grown, to understand that, you know, you get somebody that's my age or a little older and they say, you know, 
Vegetables just don't taste like I re remember them tasting. It must be my taste buds as I get older. And they come in here and they eat one that's like they remember as a kid. And we've seen people in tears. And yeah, because they taste a tomato that tastes like a tomato that they remember as a child or a beet. And they haven't eaten a beet in the last 45 years. And they eat one of these beets and they're sitting there with tears coming down their face. It's really about being able to educate, empower, to talk, discuss about the challenges. And quite frankly, the tremendous opportunities we have before us. Because there is hope. We can make a change. And it is important for our sustainability and for the sustainability of society, we have to be thinking more plant-based, plant-forward than ever before. Amen to that. Okay, we're going to come right back with more from Farmer Lee Jones. You can tell he's, he's slightly passionate about vegetables and nutrition. <laughs> and uh, he's going to tell us more about his new book, The Chef's Garden. So stay with us. This episode is supported by Angry Orchard. I'm Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio, and I'll be moderating an amazing virtual event with Angry Orchard and Heritage Radio Network on May 26th. We'll be celebrating the release of the new first-of-its-kind book, American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. I'll be in conversations with the authors, Daniel Pucci and Craig Cavallo. Then we'll welcome Angry Orchard head cider maker Ryan Burke for myth-busting about this beverage and an interactive cider tasting. When you order a ticket, you'll also receive a copy of the book. Visit heritageradionetwork.org cider. Plus, you'll find a link to purchase a hand-selected cider bundle from Angry Orchard so you can taste along with us. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org cider. Welcome back. We're talking to vegetable farmer Lee Jones about his new book, The Chef's Garden. So, Farmer Lee, we were talking about how your business up until uh, your farm business up until 2020 was really about working with top chefs and a kind of symbiotic relationship between what they wanted and what you could grow for them and all of that. But this vegetable book you really wrote for everyone. And I was just curious, given that you had this kind of tight network with chefs. And what made you decide to write a vegetable book for everybody? Well, you know, I think that it's the movement that the, the world needs to move towards. And, you know, Ferran Adria was here on the farm 10 years ago with Charlie Trotter. And at that time, Ferran was the number one restaurant in the world out of El Bulli and Madrid. And he said something kind of interesting to us that was really inspirational. He said, you know, we've explored every species of poultry, of beef, of fish uh, that exists in the world. Uh, yet there are literally thousands of vegetables to be explored and leafy greens and plants. And and he said, and that's the future. And he was so far ahead of himself because today I'm sure he's very proud of the direction we're moving. And of course, I would think that he would say that it should be moving faster. But, you know, it's, look, the, the COVID situation has been devastating for all of us. We've lost family members. We've lost loved ones or friends. It's been devastating, and then let alone the financial burden that everybody has gone through. But I've got to believe there's some silver linings. We've got to look for some good out of something so horrific. And one of the things that's exciting to me is, you know, kids love to emulate or they will emulate their parents. And last year, 
parents were planting gardens. There were more gardens planted in the United States last year than in the history of the United States. And guess what? The kids were helping because that's what mom and dad were doing. They wanted to help. And when a kid helped plant a carrot, they're a whole lot more excited about eating it. And I want to believe, I'm hopeful to believe that we have a whole new generation of gardeners out there. So this book, it certainly gives tips on gardening. Uh, I think it's great for that person that loves to go and reconnect with people at the farmer's market. Uh, but it's about inspiring you to not be intimidated to walk by the celery root or the salsa fee or something you're like, that's a little strange. I've never cooked it before. I don't know about that. Try it. Experiment. Have fun. And it's really about inspiring folks to consider vegetables. Well, I think you're succeeding. And um, I was going to say, I didn't know if you saw, I just saw an announcement this morning, which you might not have seen that I think I did. Did the 11 Madison Park I'm announcement. I'm so excited. I just talked to Mike here at the farm and I said, Mike, get a hold of the chef, fly him out here to the farm. He's got to see the lab. He's got to understand the work we're doing. This is so great. I'm, I'm just, I, I think, again, 11 Madison Park continues to be at the front cutting edge. And it's very, very exciting. It's the future, and they well, see it. Let me just share for all the listeners who might not be on their <laughs> mailing list. So 11 Madison Park, which at one point was named the best restaurant in the world, um, and yes. Chef Daniel Hum announced today that their reopening in June will have some differences. And one of the differences is they will continue to provide um, food for the less fortunate, which they've been doing through the pandemic, and they will only be returning as a plant-based uh, restaurant, fully plant-based, the whole menu, I assume still at the highest Michelin level they can get it. So basically um, affirming everything Farmer Lee just told you. <laughs> Sorry, I get, I'm pretty excited about that. I've already visualized those <laughs> amazing coolers that they have that used to hang duck. And I can visualize them doing an aged vegetable. And how exciting is it to be able to repurpose some of that for vegetables? Yeah, so I want to ask you to give you uh, give us some uh, specifics, because I know that you've been very devoted to um, new varieties or heirloom varieties or growing um, foods that, you know, were not the standard in a 1960s grocery store. So I wanted uh, you to call out, you mentioned salsify, which we've talked about recently on the podcast, but what, what are some examples you love of the less common vegetables that you're growing and that are featured in the book? Well, I think the most underrated vegetable in America is the king of the garden, which is kohlrabi. And uh, Wolfgang Puck was here on the farm once, and he wanted to know where the kohlrabi patch was. And we took him out there, and he reached out and pulled one right out of the earth and shook some of the soil off. We cut the root off, and he stood there and ate that thing like an apple. And the crunch and the, the flavor and the earthy tones to that, and the greenness and the crispness of that, and just the biggest smile. But kohlrabi is certainly one of my favorites and very underrated any of the stuff that we can eat raw, we get an automatic 50% more nutritional level. When we cook it, we start losing nutrition. We cook it too long. I look back at some of the meals that my grandmother prepared, and she was an amazing cook, but she would cook some of this stuff half a day. And I, I, I kind of questioned how much nutrition was left in it. But anything that we can eat raw, work into the, the, our diets raw, and eat the rainbow. Eat as much color as we can. But another one that I'm kind of partial to is uh, Mr. Fry's rhubarb. Mr. Fry 
Our, our county has an amazing microclimate. It hosted, as near as we can figure, over 330 vegetable growers in our county. Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. It's consequently the warmest. And it, it provides an amazing microclimate. And European settlers recognized that this area was huge in grapes even before Napa Valley. And Mr. Fry was one of those old-time vegetable growers. And he brought with him stock from the old country, the rhubarb stock. And him and his wife always worked together, and they used their customers were grocery stores. And this is before chain grocery stores came into play. And so if, if the listeners can think back to when they were a kid and remember the family-owned grocery stores that used to be in existence that are gone now, but Mr. and Mrs. Fry would harvest their vegetables in the morning, and they would go in at lunch, and then they would make their deliveries in the afternoon. Not only was it deliveries, but it was social outings because they made friends and it was relationships. And we had, as Americans, a connection with where our food was coming from. And unfortunately, that's where it's been lost. And now we're reconnecting that. But Mr. Fry, when he died, he willed us his rhubarb stock. And mm -hmm. as an ode to Mr. Fry, we never sell our rhubarb that it isn't Mr. Fry's rhubarb. And so Mr. Fry, Mrs. Fry, looking down, I just want you to know, thank you for the greatest rhubarb in the world. So tell us, what is distinctive in terms of that variety of rhubarb, and um, how do you like to uh, eat it? I like to eat it raw. I like to pull a stalk up out of the ground and hear it, hear the plant give a little crunch when it comes out. And of course, don't eat the leaf and eat it raw. But um, I, its color is kind of a strawberry red, and it's got a red color even all the way through to the center. And the, so its color is really what it's, what it's known for, and it's just a, it's the flavor of it is certainly you've got this sour. It's kind of like reminds you of going out in the backyard and eating a green apple out of the tree before it's ready, but yet you get these undertones of sweetness. It's just fantastic. <laughs> And how do you eat your kohlrabi? Do you also just eat it raw like an apple? Well, you know, we've really been turned on by the mandolin lately. Any of this, any of these root vegetables and winter vegetables that we're still working out of that we harvested last fall, I love to, to use the mandolin and cut them thin and keep them uncooked and put them on a salad or just put a bowl of them beside your chair at night instead of snacking on something that's processed uh, or got preservatives in it, you just you reach over and you eat some nice crunchy fiber. You feel light on your toes and you're ready to go dancing in the morning. <laughs> well, one can you're you're definitely a living, walking billboard for the energy that uh, great vegetables gives people. <laughs> I've been told I'm as big as a billboard several times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you're still clearly light on your feet. So, I I was curious. Um, I wanted you to maybe share since we're in May and I made a pledge to myself to, to, to really try to stop eating produce out of season. And I think while it takes some restraint and modification, you're rewarded in flavor. And so wanted you to share with us, us entering May, what should people be looking out for that's going to taste the best now? Oh my gosh. I love you. love laying that one down the plate for me. That's such a beautiful question. Mother Nature provides such a natural rhythm for us to eat by. One of the best questions I've ever gotten from chefs over the years is calling us and say, Farmer, I'm putting my menu together. What should I put on the menu? I love that question. Because we can eat a tomato or a strawberry or 
anything, pretty much, we can eat anything any time of the year. I don't know that it necessarily means that we should. I, I tell you, I'm very unexcited about eating a tomato in January that's pink colored or maybe red, but there's no flavor. It's a beautiful tomato, but there's nothing there. There's nothing that beats when you go and you pick the first tomatoes out of the garden or you get them at the farm market or you get them at a restaurant and you've got to have a hanky in one hand and you bite into that tomato that's warm from the summer air and the juice just drips down your chin and the flavor just bursts. And, and you've got to have that hanky to wipe the juice off of your chin. And, and Mother Nature just provides such a natural rhythm. This time of year, the ramps, which are such a short season, we've got three, four weeks with those. The asparagus is coming out of the ground. We're picking pink and white and purple and green asparagus, uh, dandelion greens, the wintered over spinach. We plant it in the fall. It has, we have some spinach right now. We trademarked it ice spinach. Same concept as ice wine. They harvest that grape frozen because it's at the highest sugar level. Well, this, we don't harvest the spinach frozen, but it freezes at night, it thaws during the day, it freezes at night, thaws. This spinach has been frozen and thawed over 60 times, and we use a refractometer. Any of your listeners haven't heard of it, Google it, buy one for 50 or 60 bucks. They're really cool to play with. You take anything that you're gonna eat in the way of vegetable or fruit, you can take a pair of pliers, squeeze it, get a little bit of juice, put it on, it looks like a little telescope, and it'll measure the amount of light density through the pulp, and it'll tell you the sugar levels. The little carrots that you get in the store in the plastic bags that are rounded at both ends that are supposed to look like a baby carrot that really aren't, those measure about a three on a refractometer. The carrots that we're pulling out of the ground measure about a 16 right now. But the spinach is actually testing as sweet as a red delicious apple. It's just that sweet all the way down to the stem. And you almost have to have earplugs on if you squeeze the leaves, the crunch of it is just amazing. <laughs> it's got body and life and color. It's just, it's full of nutrition. And how have you been, grow how long have you been growing this ice spinach? Well, we've been growing it forever, but we didn't call it ice spinach till about 15 or 20 years ago because we started, you know, my grandparents were from down south and they would never eat collard greens until after the frost. And so then the ice wine came along and I started thinking about why they didn't want to eat the collard greens before the frost. So then we started testing them and we found lo and behold that the bitterness and the rankness goes down and the sweetness goes up in a collard green. The same thing happens with a Brussels sprout. We won't pick it until after frost. The sugar, the natural sugar levels go up. And it's exciting because, you know, one of the things that Jamie alludes to in this book Look, we all get the food waste issues in America. We've all seen that commercial a dozen times about 40% food waste. I think it's underrated. Having a relationship with a grower of knowing, reconnecting with where our food is coming from and knowing when the ebbs and flows of the seasons are helps us to be able to reduce that waste. Looking at the plant in an entirely different way than we've ever considered. We only eat, it, the Brussels sprouts four, grows to four feet tall, it takes 10 months to grow, and we only pick the little tiny Brussels sprout off of it. I would defy any of your listeners to be able to, if they were blindfolded, to be able to tell the difference between a Brussels sprout leaf and a collard green or a broccoli or a cauliflower. They're all in the cruciferous family. And Jamie even presents how you can use the stalk of the Brussels sprout as a vegetable marrow. You know, in Europe, we've learned over the years, at some point in their survival, how to use every part of an animal, not to waste it, to celebrate it. 
And what better way to celebrate a vegetable's life than to be able to utilize the entire plant at every single stage of the plant's life and offer something unique to the plate. We reduce the weight, the waste, and we respect that plant. That could not be better said, and I think it, it's fantastic to know how aligned you are with chefs, because certainly on this show, we've had many chefs on talking about food waste and their desire to to really go down this path of exploration and commitment to, you know, discovering the veg and the whole veg and new ways to do it. And, you know, I think the 11 Madison Park announcement is kind of a culmination. So after the break, we'll hear Farmer Lee's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, you can tweet us at Julia Child JCF, let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. The Santa Barbara Culinary Experience brings you El Buena Quipo. It takes a village to make great Santa Barbara wine. Join us May 21st to hear from those who labor to grow the grapes that make Santa Barbara's globally renowned wine. This virtual event will be hosted by Matt Ketman, an editor at Wine Enthusiast and the Santa Barbara Independent. You can go to sbce.events to register. It's free, and you don't even need to go to Santa Barbara to participate. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Farmer Lee, what's your Julia Moment? Well, I have a couple, but I think that the the most special was I received a phone call here on the farm one day. And I, I really thought that it was a chef. You know, over the years, you get a comfort level and you work and you build a relationship with the chefs. And it's a lot of fun. But there was a chef and I thought that he was yanking my chain. I thought he was trying to imitate Julia Childs. And I'm thinking, who is this rascal that's trying to yank my chain? I'm thinking, this is the poorest imitation of Julia Childs. And I was about to bust their chops on it a little bit. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is Julia Child on the phone. And I I didn't even know that she knew that we existed, much less our phone number and calling us. And you know, and she she said, This is Julia Child here. I'm calling from Cambridge Springs, Massachusetts. And my tomatoes haven't haven't ripened yet, and I'm having guests, and I wonder if you could send me some. I'd be so grateful. And of course, we sent her the tomatoes, and I, I was just so honored to get to send her tomatoes because I've watched her on television. She's been an inspiration to all of us in the food world. And so we sent the tomatoes, and by about noon on Saturday, we put the uh, phone on record, and we tried to get our team a half a day off on Saturday and try to get uh, all day on Sunday off, and then we start back to work on Monday morning. Well, sometime after the recorder was turned on, she called back. The tomatoes have arrived, and they're marvelous, and the guests just love them. Make sure and send me a bill. Have a good weekend. And I happened to 
have a recorder there by my phone and I recorded that. And it's truly, in the last 40 years, one of the most special days of being able to uh, get to supply her with the tomatoes. And then, of course, I met her a couple of years later at an Alain Ducasse uh, opening in New York City and got to uh, meet her. And she was so friendly and so outgoing, so genuine. She gave me a big hug and a kiss. And it was just, and we got a picture with her. I have my favorite coffee cup is a picture with me meeting Julia Child. And I drink my <laughs> coffee that. and see Julia. And it's just, she was just really, really special, genuine, authentic. And she broke down those barriers of making food intimidating. And I think that in part, our we hope that our book does the same thing. This inspires people not to be intimidated. Our book's full of mistakes and trials and tribulations over the last 40 or 50 years. And we're going to make some mistakes. Have fun and play. Well, I think Julia would wholeheartedly endorse your um, commitment and enthusiasm for um, growing great vegetables and for making that connection that flavor and nutrition and good health actually go hand in hand and are not either wars. Well, I would like to think so. Thank you very much for joining us today, Farmer Lee. It was truly an honor. Anytime I get to talk veggies with anybody that's interested, it's a very special day. Make sure and eat your vegetables. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. The book is The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables with Recipes by Farmer Lee Jones with Kristen Donnelly. It's replete with stunning photographs by Yossi Arefi and Michelle Demuth Bibb, and recipes by Jamie Simpson, who, as Farmer Lee said, is the head chef at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. It's available now from Avery, a Penguin Random House imprint. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. If you want to keep up with Farmer Lee, he's at Farmer Lee Jones on Instagram. And for more about the chef's garden itself, including details about a new $10,000 college scholarship in agriculture named in honor of farmer lee you can go to chefs-garden.com for more from the foundation make sure you're following at julia child on facebook and at julia child foundation on instagram it's at julia child jcf and i'm at t shulkin on twitter the lineup for 2021 santa barbara culinary experience is on sbce.events follow at sb culinary experience on instagram for the latest updates. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.